I mean, that, that's one of the most important questions, isn't it? Surely you, like me, have been frustrated with various writers' rooms. After You've been watching a story week after week for five, six, seven, eight, nine years. You get to a series finale, and they just blow it, right? I mean, they don't do justice to the characters, to the plot, to the mystery, to the, to the loose ends. Some of the greatest, most famous TV shows when they were running have had their reputations ruined by a bad ending. Or other times, the ending is just so good that you realize, man, I want to start that show over. I, I tend to do that. Chrissy's like, no, let's watch something else. Um, where, where, you know, the difficulties, the confusion, the low points of previous seasons now make sense in light of the end, and you can appreciate them. The, the, the bitter setbacks are made that much sweeter by knowing how the story ends. And so how does Ruth's story end? How does your story end? Because in a lot of ways, Ruth's story is our story. Does it end as, as a tragedy? Where life is a slow fall from grace, from prestige, a fall from glory? It ends in sadness and sorrow and, meaningless and meaninglessness and despair. Usually a tragedy ends in death. Is Ruth, are you a, a, a tragic hero in this story? Or does it end as a comedy? In the classical sense, right? A story of setbacks, of course, but on their way upward on a trajectory towards a happy ending where the lowly are raised up and given joy and fortune and happiness, the, the, the very happiness they've been seeking. You know, traditionally a comedy doesn't end in death, but with a wedding. Because how the story ends shapes everything about it. Knowing the end even helps us to interpret today, right? If, if Shakespeare was right and all's well that ends well, that means if our story is headed toward a happy conclusion, then everything, even God's bitter providence, we might be experiencing today as well along the way. The book of Ruth ends by focusing on the theme of redemption and redeeming. The various storylines of Ruth and Naomi, they all come to a close a happy close, a, a, a comedic close, right? Not a tragic one because of a redeemer. And so since, since Ruth is a book all about the loving kindness of God, I just want to show you one simple truth this morning from, from Ruth chapter 4, and it's this, that God's kindness is most clearly seen through his redeemer. So let me read this. This is Ruth chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to a relative, Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. And if you redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, 
and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthy in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception. And she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who has more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. <coughs> Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. As the book of Ruth ends, we need to tie up a couple different storylines. They, they come into play sequentially in our text. Uh, first, we'll consider Ruth's story, then Naomi's story, then Israel's story, and finally, your story. And so you know up front, I'm, I'm planning on giving Ruth's story about two-thirds of this sermon. So when you look at your watch and I'm on point one, you don't have to fear about that. Um, <coughs> but let, let's first consider Ruth's story. Look at verses 1 through 13 with me. Remember Ruth's story so far? Ruth is a young Moabite girl living in the God-hating nation of Moab when this boy from Bethlehem moves in next door. Um, they get married, and for 10 years they try to have kids, but they don't have any children. 
And then one day her husband, Malon, dies, just like his father died and his brother died in Moab. And so it's just Ruth, her sister-in-law, Orpah, and her mother-in-law, Naomi. And like the men of her life are taken away by death, the women try to leave her too. Naomi hears there's food in Bethlehem, so she's planning on going back home, and she says to her daughters-in-law, to Orpah and to Ruth, Go back to your parents' homes. Go find a new husband. Be blessed there. Do what is sensible. Do what seems right. A widow can't survive on her own. So, so, so go home. And yet Ruth refuses. Instead, she turns from her old life, worshiping Molech and Moab, and she says to Naomi, no, I'm going to follow you. I'm converting. I'm becoming Jewish. I'm going to worship your God. I'm going to join your people. I'm going to be part of your family. She pledges her life to Naomi and her God and her people. And so Ruth returns to Bethlehem with Naomi. And when she gets there, she's treated as nothing. She's a liability. She's an embarrassment upon Naomi because she's just this this physical reminder of Naomi's faithlessness in Moab and the sin of her son in marrying a Moabite woman. She's a liability. But Ruth gets to work anyway. She she says, I'm going to care for Naomi. She goes to a field hoping to find favor, hoping to find a few scraps along the edge. And she does. (laughs) Well, she finds more than that. She finds Boaz in the field. And Boaz just pours out God's own blessing upon upon Ruth. He sends her home with some 30 pounds of grain that day. And then when she gets home, Naomi's like, oh, Boaz. He's one of our redeemers, meaning he's one of the men who could marry Naomi and take care of her, or I'm sorry, marry Ruth and take care of her and Naomi. So a few months later in chapter 3, Ruth, at Naomi's instruction, goes and she sneaks into the threshing floor and she proposes to Boaz. She asks, redeem me, care for me, care for my family. And Boaz says, absolutely, I would love to redeem you but it's not my call. There's somebody closer who has the right of redemption before I do. But he says, I'll settle this right away. And he sends her back full to Naomi, this time with some 90 pounds of grain. And so as we jump into chapter 4, we pick up right in the midst of the action, figuring out, okay, so who is this that's going to redeem Naomi? We have a promised redemption, but we don't know who the redeemer is. And so when we get to chapter 4, look at, look at this action that Boaz just jumps in and he goes to the city gate, verse 1 says. This is where the influential men of the town would either uh, come together to do business or just, you know, shoot the breeze. It could be the conference room at City Hall or it could be the table at the Coney with the old men drinking coffee. It, It's just the the place to go in the city. But by sitting down at the gate, Boaz shows, I'm here to do business. We're not just, you know, talking this morning. Let's do some work. He's uh, he's convening the city council, if you will. Um, And it just so happens, it's funny how God's providence works, that that bachelor number two, this mystery redeemer, comes walking by. Hey, friendo, come sit. And then a quorum of ten elders just happened to be walking by. 
hey, you guys, come sit as well. Let, let's do something. Something's about to happen. God put all the right people at the right place at the right time, and Boaz begins to speak. Look at, look at, chapter, or look at verse 3. He says, Then Boaz said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to her relative Elimelech. That was her husband. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. Boaz gives this mystery man what's rightfully his, the, the option of redeeming Naomi's land, to keep it in the family. Boaz is committed to doing what's right before God and before others, whether or not it works out for his favor. And the man says, I'll redeem it. Which is not what we were hoping for, is it? I mean, by this point, we love Boaz. Ruth loves Boaz. We want Boaz to redeem Ruth, not this, this mystery man, so-and-so is the, the literal translation. We don't even have his name. But the close redeemer says, yes, which is maybe out of his kindness and his charity. When you redeem land from a relative, it's only yours until the year of Jubilee. That happens every seven years. So we don't know how long he gets this land for, but he's doing what is expected of him. He's taking care of his family. He's redeeming the land. I mean, maybe he was in it for the money. You're going to make at least a few bucks off of owning another field. Um, all we know is he did exactly what was expected of him. Family takes care of family. There is a widow in need. So he bought the land. Seems like a decent guy to me. But he didn't have all the information. Because look at verse 5. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So there's a little bit of mixing of law and custom here. And even if it was clear, it's still weird to us, right? In Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10, you have this commandment that a brother-in-law should perpetuate his dead brother's name with his widow and care for her. That, that's how widows were provided for. The brother-in-law provided for them. And they had kids in the brother-in-law's name uh, so that his line would be carried on in Jerusalem. The, the commandment was for a brother-in-law to do this. No father, no, no cousins, no kinsmen, like we have in Ruth 4, meaning neither our mystery man or Boaz were actually required by God's law to redeem Ruth. Only the one that was bound to redeem, the only one was, was Malon's brother, Kilian, who's in a grave somewhere in Moab. Let me, let me actually just read this, Deuteronomy 25. This is verse 5 through 10. God gave this command so you can see it. It says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed the name of his dead brother. That, in, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate of the elders and say, 
My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. So a little bit strange for modern ears, but we're only talking about brothers here. Though apparently by the time of the judges, by the time of Ruth, the tradition extended that past brothers to any sort of family could redeem a widow and her land. Maybe not as a command, maybe not as an obligation, but as a way to fulfill the heart of the law and not just the letter of it so that no family line would perish into history, be blotted out of Israel, and so no widow would die penniless and alone. So Boaz asks this man not just to redeem the land, but to show God's own loving kindness towards Ruth as well, to redeem her, to perpetuate Malon's legacy. And with that additional requirement, the the nearer redeemer changes his mind. Verse 6, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. The man's not sinning. He's doing what's sensible, just like Orpah did in going back to her family. He counts the cost of splitting his inheritance. Maybe he already has children, and he doesn't want to cut their inheritance in half and give some of it to Ruth's son. He calculates. He does what seems wise, what's sensible. He does no wrong. He doesn't sin here. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of commentators I read want to beat up on this guy. Like, no wonder he's not named in the Bible the punk. He doesn't care about what's doing right. But, but he's following God's law. I'm, I'm not convinced. He puts a sensible limit on his loving kindness. He drew boundaries to care for his family, to care for his kids. He's not wicked for this. He's not forsaking his God-given duty, though I suppose you could say he's now ruthless because of it. Um, but, but Boaz, his loving kindness is not bound by sensibility. No, it seems that Boaz's loving kindness reflects God's unlimited loving kindness as well. Surely he's relieved right now. His plan of risky faith worked out. And by verse 9, it seems there's this crowd of people now gathered at the gate watching everything go down. It's not just the elders, but verse 9 says that Boaz addressed the elders and all the people. Maybe Naomi and Ruth had made their way to the gate as well. You know, riding this roller coaster of emotion, now giddy that Boaz indeed can redeem Ruth. And look what he says to the, the crowd and the elders. Verse 9, he says, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and that belongs to Kilion and to Malon, and also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. 
The story of Ruth ends well. The boy gets the girl. Ruth is redeemed. She won't die penniless. She won't die unloved, starving, and alone. Her late husband's name won't be forgotten. The Lord's kindness was worked out through Boaz, just like it was in the field and at the threshing floor. But now, instead of being hidden in secret, the Lord's kindness is publicly displayed as Boaz announces redemption at the gate. He redeemed Ruth. Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the widow of Malon, he says. He doesn't try and hide who she is, where she's from, what her life has consisted of. He knows her history, and so does everybody else. And yet he's saying, hurry up. Buy some wine, bake a cake, hire a band, call the florist. I am marrying Ruth the Moabite. But wait a second, Dan. Didn't a month ago you say that it was sinful to marry a Moabite, that it would get you banned from the temple for ten generations? Yeah, you're right. But you're not considering the heart of the law there. The purpose for that is because Moabites have this reputation, a well-earned one, of drawing God's people away from covenant faithfulness. But not Ruth. No, Ruth is an example of that covenant faithfulness. She's an example of being drawn towards it. She becomes a model Israelite, just like Rahab before her. I mean, God's always bringing outsiders into his family from Canaan and from Moab and from the USA. He converts them. He welcomes them. His loving kindness knows no bounds toward them. He moves heaven and earth to bring outsiders into his family. And we should rejoice in this because God brought in Ruth and God brought in you. You and your sin are just as bad as any Moabite, just as foreign. You're a complete outsider, just as sinful. I mean, we're all born far from God, out in a far country, born far off from God's covenant people, and yet he still brings us near. He's not embarrassed by our history. He's not ashamed of our past. He's not ashamed of us being an outsider. Christ is your Redeemer who declares publicly and proudly, she is my beloved. That sinner from Moab, from Michigan, from Commerce Township, wherever you're from, she is mine, and I want everyone to know it. Hebrews 2 says that he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, his people, all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Jesus isn't ashamed of you. You're, you're not being snuck in the back doors of heaven because Jesus is embarrassed that you're there. No, he's proud of you. He loves you. Verse 12 of Hebrew, it, it quotes Psalm 22. It says, he will sing of our praise. Don't we sing of Jesus' praise? Yeah, we already did that this morning. But Hebrews 2.12 says, Jesus will sing of our praise. He sings a love song over us. He, he is glad that we are part of his family. He's not embarrassed of you. He's not ashamed of you. He knows more about you than you know about you, and he loves you anyway. The love of our Redeemer is absolutely staggering. Boaz gives a shadow of it, but Christ gives the reality. Jesus isn't like that no-name redeemer who thinks about what it would cost to love someone 
and calculates the cost as being too high. No, he counts the cost and thus pours out his own blood to redeem a dirty, sinful Moabite bride and to wash her and to redeem her and to make her pure and lovely, to bring her into his family, to pour out his kindness and to make the worthless worthy. Oh, how Ruth's story of redemption points to our own. How Boaz the Redeemer points to Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, who loves us and gave himself for us out of sacrificial loving kindness. God's loving kindness is most clearly seen in his Redeemer. And the people respond, verse 11, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. What a blessing in Ruth's redemption. The townsfolk don't think of Ruth as a nothing and an outsider anymore. She's not a Moabite any longer. Rather, they pray that she would be like Ruth, or that she would be like Rachel and Leah, the very mothers of the nation of Israel. I mean, you can't be any more of an insider than that. They pray that Boaz's name would be renowned all throughout Bethlehem and the region because of his kindness, which I think is answered given that we're talking about him 3,000 years later. And they pray that their house would be full like Perez, who also came from a odd Leverite marriage with a widow Tamar. Back in chapter 1, recall, Naomi told the girls, listen, go home, find rest in your husband's house. She wanted the best for her daughters-in-law. But through Ruth's righteous and stubborn refusal, Naomi's prayer was answered far beyond anything that she could imagine. She was redeemed by Boaz of Bethlehem. And not only was she redeemed for marriage, but look at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception. She bore a son. I mean, the major problem of this whole story is there's no one to care for Ruth. She doesn't have a son. And in an instant, God reverses all of her problems. She's been given a redeemer in Boaz, and the point of the redeemer is to give her a son, which she, he immediately does. I mean, this book is all about God's loving kindness and his providence. For 10 years in Moab, she couldn't have any children. And then in an instant, in one and half a verse, right? After 10 years, God gave her conception. Not Boaz, but God gave her a son through Boaz. Ruth was redeemed. Her story was reversed. She started as nothing and ended up being like the mothers of Israel, blessed and loved. Ruth's story is not a tragedy. It's a comedy. She's raised from the dust, and she's crowned with glory. I mean, the way that this book speaks of Ruth is astounding. Maybe you've noticed the progression over the weeks. In, in chapter 1, verse 22, she's just a Moabite. Then in 2.13, she's called a maidservant. In 3.9, she's an eligible, marriageable female. That's an odd literal translation. And then in 4.11, now she's a woman. But at the end of her story, 4.13, she's a beloved wife. She's gone from being just a Moabite to the beloved 
wife. What a kindness God showed her through his redeemer. And maybe you resonate with Ruth's story because you feel like an outsider. You feel worthless, like you could never belong and never amount to much. And maybe on your own that's true, but we're not, we're not called to do this alone. We've been given a redeemer too. Like Ruth had Boaz, we have Jesus Christ who lifts you from the pit, who values you and loves you and gives you everything you need. I mean, even before Jesus was born, his mother was singing this song. And Luke 1, 46, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. It's not just Mary. She says, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. And he has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. So the call is not to be scattered with the proud, but to let your Redeemer pour out his loving kindness upon you as he does great things for you, giving mercy to those who fear him, looking upon the humble estate of his servants, and then exalting them. See your need, your hunger, and let him fill you, for we have a generous Redeemer. But not just us, and not just Ruth, Naomi too. I mean, look at Naomi's redemption. It's verses 14 through 17 here. <clears throat> Some people have even questioned, why is this called the book of Ruth? Shouldn't this be the book of Naomi? The, the story starts with Naomi. It ends with Naomi. Chapters 2 and 3, they start and end with Naomi. Ruth comes in later. So consider Naomi's story. It's, it's the story about being empty, but then being filled by her redeemer <clears throat> i mean she lost her home she lost her land that was just sold she lost her husband she lost her son she even lost one of her daughters-in-law and she lost her reputation again it was marred by ruth's existence and in all this she recognized but god's in control i, I don't think she blamed him or cursed him like job's wife did but rather she knew the reality of God's sovereignty over all things. Remember her statement from the end of chapter 1? I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. And that was absolutely true. But it's not her whole story, is it? The Lord brought her back empty, but in a way that's, uh, that's reminiscent of 2 Corinthians 4.17, which says, For this light and this momentary affliction are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. God's bitter providence, his emptying of Naomi wasn't purposeless. It was so he could fill her with a glory she could never imagine and maybe never even fully understand so that he could pour out his loving kindness through a redeemer. It's been happening all along, hasn't it? When Ruth was sent out to the field, she doesn't come back empty. She comes back with 30 pounds of grain for Naomi. When she's sent to the threshing floor, she comes back with three times that much. And now when Ruth is sent to her redeemer, she comes back with something far better than grain. When Ruth lays that little boy in grandma's lap, 
look what the townswomen say. The ones who a year ago were, were looking at her battered by a decade of grief saying, surely this can't be Naomi, is it? Now look how they speak. Verse 14. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who has more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Wait, I, I thought Boaz was our redeemer. But they just said Ruth gave birth to the redeemer. This little boy in Naomi's lap, Obed, not Boaz, is her redeemer. Keep reading, verse 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So, so not only is Obed the redeemer, they also say a child's been born to Naomi, not Ruth. The, 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 it's, he's Naomi's son, which the language here is just picking up what happened in chapter 1, that Naomi had two sons, and now where the Lord had emptied her, he's filled her, but with a, even a greater filling than that which she lost. This son, of course, will protect and provide for, for grandma in her old age, but more than that, he will be renowned in Israel because through him the king will come. Naomi's grandson would be the grandfather of King David. But not only that, but you know David's son, right? Not, not Solomon, but David's true son. The other little boy, the other redeemer born in Bethlehem. God's true redeemer, Jesus Christ. The true son of David, who when he walked into Jerusalem in Matthew 21, the crowd shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. They got it. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. If it wasn't for Ruth, if it wasn't for Malon's death, if it wasn't for Naomi's own faithless act of going to Moab, Naomi would be forgotten to history, just another corpse in the Middle East. But instead, she was emptied so that the Lord could fill her. Her lap where her two little boys once sat before they were laid in their graves now holds the ancestor of the king. Not, not only King David, but the king of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, a redeemer, God's loving kindness in the flesh. And if that wasn't enough, Naomi also has Ruth with her, who's worth more than seven sons. She's no longer a liability. She is an incredibly worthy blessing. I mean, we've called the book of Ruth the greatest love story ever told. But this is, this is the only time that the word love actually shows up in the book. It's not between Boaz and Ruth. It's about Ruth and Naomi. It's not a romantic love, but it's Ruth's unbreakable, kind, sacrificial love for Naomi. This direct reflection of God's love and kindness for us. A sacrificial love that moves heaven and earth to fill the empty, to bind up the brokenhearted. And so again, Naomi's story is brought to a happy ending because she found a redeemer. Ruth found Boaz. Naomi found Obed. And maybe... You know, we don't feel like Ruth. We don't resonate with her story as much. 
Maybe you feel more like Naomi. You understand what it is to be empty, to be bitter. Maybe the Lord has dealt bitterly with you, and you don't understand why. You know, I, I don't think Naomi understood why either. I mean, it's, it's doubtful that she survived to meet her great, great grandson, much less to see him grow up and to take the throne in, in Jerusalem. But we see the full story that she didn't, right? We see the full picture. Can you imagine in heaven that family reunion when Naomi meets her great-great-grandson and says, well, sweetie, what did you do with your life? And then things start making sense to her. I mean, you too can walk by faith, no, absolutely knowing that God will keep his promises through his Redeemer to make up for whatever emptiness there was in your life, to make up for whatever was lost. I love, I love his promise in Joel 2.25, where after God sends judgment, a judgment of locusts on his people, he later says, I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. Maybe you felt God's heavy hand, his bitter hand, even his judging hand. But if you turn to him in faith, through the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, he will restore everything that he has taken, even, as, even the things he's taken in his judgment. Whatever you've lost, whatever you've been emptied of, he will restore to you and more. Even with com without complete understanding, we can have complete trust of the Lord in our emptiness. We might not perceive what he's doing, but we can know he's working his kind hand of providence, whether it's a bitter or a pleasant providence for our good because of the Redeemer. We know he's working his loving kindness through his Redeemer. And I, I feel like most of us would just end the book right there. Hallelujah. Ruth is redeemed. Naomi's redeemed. We have hope. We have a future. But then we get verse 17, or verse 18, and the genealogy. What is this? Are we back in Genesis? I mean, the book began with a list of names, right? Elimelech, Naomi, Malon, Kilian, Ortha, Ruth. And you know how it ends? With another list of names. Because this book isn't just about Ruth. It's not just about Naomi. It's about Israel and her redemption, too. I mean, the conclusion to Ruth's story happens in a day, right? Naomi's is a year, well, nine months. Um, but Israel's takes ten generations listed out. I mean, we, we saw this. Look at verse 18 again. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. It's the same thing we read in, in Chronicles, and we read it again in Matthew 1, actually. It's, it's this abbreviated genealogy, not hitting every generation, but the high point of family history. From the line of Judah, we get Boaz, and we get David. I know I've brought it up time and again, but Ruth happens during the, the season of the Judges, one of the darkest, most wicked seasons of Israel's existence. Through murder 
through corruption, through violence, through oppression, the history of Israel was crying out for a king, for a redeemer. Because, it, because there was no king in those days, and everyone did what was right in their eyes, whether that meant setting fields ablaze or sacrificing their own daughters or by selling holy religious services to the highest bidder, you know, 10 shekels and a shirt. Like, as, as you read the book of Judges, God's not really this onstage actor. He's kind of in the wings. Sometimes he sends blessings. Sometimes he sends judgment. And each time there's hope that things might get turned around, we get a new judge, and he's worse than the one that came before. And it seems like in the book of Ruth, God's an off-screen actor as well. He's blessing and cursing, but he never really gets things back on track for the nation. But during that dark, wicked season of Israel's life, God hadn't left them. Now, what he was doing was preparing for them what's next. A king after his own heart. King David to give an ongoing, never-ending kingdom and a heart towards the Lord. Even to prepare a temple for his son to build. God was preparing for them a warrior poet, a shepherd king, to rule as God's instrument, his redeemer for the people. And so the story of God's work in the book of Judges, is, it, it, it's there, but maybe it's more clearly seen in the book of Ruth. I think it works that way pretty often. You know, we look, we look at the big picture to try and see God's hand at work. We, we look to the nation, and maybe we come up empty, right? We don't see what he's doing because we can't see 10 generations. You know, we look, look big picture, and we see corruption we see violence we see oppression and sin and not the reign of truth and beauty and righteousness and it's easy to ask the question is god really at work these days but as you shift your eyes off of you know the nation and onto individual you begin to realize oh of course he is but god's work often looks like giving value to the worthless like ruth and filling the empty like naomi He's working in righteous men like Boaz and humble outsiders like Ruth and older widows like Naomi who have every reason just to stay bitter in the far country. But instead they come home. They, they, they come to God. They receive his blessing. Maybe we look at the wrong place to see God's kind hand. It was through just this little insignificant family that Israel was set right, at least for a while. Through King David, just like, like Ruth's story ends with a redeemer and Naomi's story ends with a redeemer, David would serve as the nation's redeemer, pointing to his true son, the true king. And so if Naomi's story and Ruth's story and Israel's story all end happily with a redeemer, then how's your story end? Is it also a comedy or is it a tragedy? Have you found your refuge under the wings of a redeemer because it's there that god pours out his blessing his loving kindness it's in jesus christ that we experience the fullness of god's saving sacrificial and faithful loving kindness we don't look to boaz or obed or david they're all pointing us to the redeemer to jesus christ ruth's story is a signpost a historical one a true one it really happened but it was given as a signpost showing our need for a redeemer, the one who came from Ruth's line, our need for Jesus Christ. 
So whether you're empty or worthless or unwanted or jaded, come to him. I can't promise that things get better before they get worse. That's, that's not how it happened in Ruth's story. It's not how it happened in Naomi's story. But I can promise that with a redeemer, life always ends as a comedy, never a tragedy. Because even when the final scene is death, the final scene is never the end. No, um, it was Lord Byron, the, the famous English poet, that said, all tragedies are finished by death. All comedies are ended by a marriage. And so just like the ending of Ruth's story, this glorious celebration, this glorious redemption that ends in a wedding, that's what we look forward to in the end of our story as well. We look forward to a marriage, a marriage supper of the Lamb with Christ the Redeemer coming for his bride to make her above reproach, to banish all sorts of sin and evil, and to give blessing upon blessing upon blessing for all eternity, to cleanse us from unrighteousness, to transform us, and to make us glorious like he is, so that he can pour out God's loving kindness on us, a loving kindness that's most clearly seen in him, our Redeemer. So if you're wandering, if you see yourself in Ruth's story, come home. There's blessing. There's loving kindness from her father. Find the Redeemer.